Let's just pray together, shall we, before we begin? Dear Father, we just thank you this morning for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be rich. And Father, I just want to thank you that we have received such abundance from you in every way, such spiritual blessing, and very often such material blessing as well. Father, we recognize you are the source of all life this morning, and we give you the adoration that's in our hearts. Oh, Father, we thank you too. You've given us all things richly to enjoy. We want to thank you that your people are the only ones who can really enjoy this creation of yours, for only we can recognize the master touch of our miraculous creator. Father, I just pray this morning, Lord, that your word may go forth clearly and that we should all know the anointing of the Holy Spirit Father, as we study passages of your word together. Father, we as a fellowship long to go your way. You know that. It's our desire that we should not go our own way, but the way that you've led us to go. And Father, we're just asking that this morning, when we consider the poor, Father, that you will touch our hearts. Father, that we should understand what you are saying to your church in these days. Oh, Father, please just open our eyes that we may see and open our ears that we might hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Last time I dealt with a, a very important subject. If you were here, you will remember that I actually answered the question, should the Church of Jesus Christ be a commune or should it actually be a community? And you remember that we saw that the issue that we needed to understand to answer that question was this. Who is it that owns everything anyway? And through various scriptures, we came to see that actually it was God who was the source of everything. And he was the only one who possessed anything in this universe. And that he decided... And he was sovereign, he could do it as the possessor of all things. He decided how he would distribute the things that he owned. And we saw that he gave it firmly into the hands of individuals for them to have authority over. And from these principles, we saw that the, what God wanted in his church and in the local assembly of, of believers is he wanted a community system in which every person owned his own property though he didn't count it as his own, every person own, um, earned his own salary, and that every person was uh, seeking God as to how he should use what God had given him. And if you remember, we saw that one of the things that is laid upon every Christian is good stewardship. And we saw that the day will come when God will call every one of us into account as to how we have used the goods that we have given, um, he has given to us. Now, I hope last time you didn't get the impression that we were only talking about physical possessions, that is, material possessions. Because actually, God's ownership of everything is much bigger than that. You see, God owns life itself. Not one of you in this room has the right to life. But God has given you the life. It's still his property, by the way. You have it for a temporary loan. And you may say, oh, I've got 70 years. You may not have 70 years. God may decide that it's time to cash in his loan after only 18 years, or after only 30 years, or 40 years. But you will be asked to give an account for the life that he has given to you. God is the only one who has life. And in the womb, it is God that imparts the life. That little baby grows, but he's already in debt to God because he has life within him. And as that babe grows and becomes a teenager, then becomes an adult, the life within him still belongs to God. And the day will come, called the day of that person's death, when God will simply say, it is time for me to take the life that is mine back to myself. He owns everything. If you're alive this morning, then you have already received something from God. And you will be answerable before him 
as to how you have used it. It's no use just saying, well, I was only 20 when I died. God will say, you had 20 years of a life. How have you used it? Did you use it for yourself or did you use it for me? Therefore, you see, all of us are rich, aren't we, in one sense. You may not have a lot of money, but you've got a life, so you're rich. We have a lot of other things as well which we get from God. Do you know when children are born, they are not born equal. I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you that, but it's patently obviously true that they're not. God says that all men are equal in certain respects. How are they equal? Well, first of all, every person who walks on the face of this earth is made in the image of God. And that means whether you're dealing with a king or with a tramp, both are of inestimable value because they are in God's image. And that's why, by the way, every man has a right to justice, as far as the Bible is concerned. Because every man is intrinsically valuable because God has made him in his own image. Every man is equal because all men are sinners. Every man is equal because all men have only one route to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the whole world. And every man is equal because every man, one day, will be judged. Every single person. Now, they are the areas where the Bible says we're equal. But it's obvious that there aren't many other areas where we are all equal. For example, when we're judged, those who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, use the gift of eternal life, will go forward to a place where they're forever with the Lord. So shall we be with the Lord? No more pain, no more suffering. Those who've rejected God's grace will find eternal judgment. That is not equal. But they had equal opportunity as individuals. But the moment a child is born, um, and uh, the moment many children are born, they are all actually diverse and divergent. For example, when a child is born, well, he has a certain IQ, he has a certain intelligence level. In this room, some are intelligent, some are not intelligent, you know? But God is the source of all intelligence. And he is the one who has distributed to every man as he saw fit. Some, for example, when they were created, as God knitted them in the womb, or embroidered them, isn't it, that the Hebrew says, in the womb, God embroidered some people really handsome and really pretty. You know, oh, they really were. They were absolutely lovely. Others, well, you're not quite as rich in that particular area. You know, you aren't the stunning beauty that you had always longed to be. Some people are born, and they are naturally able to do practical things. Others are not, you know, they have two wooden hands, just totally incapable of doing anything. Some people have this mysterious quality of popularity. Have you noticed some people, they don't do anything, they're just as popular as can be. And other people try everything and no one likes them. <laughs> Funny. We're so unequal, you know. Some people have wonderful physiques, you know. Other people are little puny wretches. <laughs> Many people, of course, when they view others and they think, oh, they're better than I am in this way, or, oh, they've got more than I've got, they think it's unfair. Beloved, it's not unfair because we have no right to anything anyway. God is the one who owns the, these things, and he distributes to every man as he wills. That's a wonderful principle. And I'll tell you this, every person will give account for what he has. Not for what you haven't got, you'll give account for what you have. This is why the Bible tells us don't envy one another or be jealous. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, if you compare yourselves with one another, you're acting without understanding. Because what you're actually saying is, God, how dare you give her better looks than you've given me? Or how come he's a, a ten-foot giant and I'm this little two-foot-six puny wretch? You know, and, and if you think in those terms, you get into an attitude of dissatisfaction all the time. Oh, I don't have this and I don't have that. God says, oh, that's not the way. Everything belongs to me and I give to every man as I see fit. And let me tell you this, going to material things. There are some people who are rich. The Bible does not say rich men are all evil, right? Neither does he say all oh, poor men are good, as some people think. Some are rich and some are poor. And God distributes to every man as he sees fit. You have to accept what you have been given as from the Lord. Every one of us will give an account. Now let's turn 
to Matthew chapter 25 and let's see <clears throat> one of the passages which deals with stewardship. You may not think that you are rich, but beloved, there is actually, uh, actually every one of us have areas where we are rich. And let's uh, just see in Matthew 25, beginning verse 14, how God will bring us all to account. And by the way, not just us, unbelievers also. Look what it says, verse 14 and onwards. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And he was a very rich man too. And unto one he gave five talents. Now what is a talent? A talent is actually a weight. And it's a weight normally of gold or silver. And a talent was actually a vast sum of money. Do you know it was equivalent to 20 years' salary? 20 years' salary. Now you take your salary and you multiply it by 20, and that's how much money he was giving out. And not just one talent either. Look what he did. Verse 15, and unto one he gave five talents. So take your salary, add two noughts to it, a hundred times your salary. That's how much money was given to one of these men. To another one he gave two, and to another one, one. And you'll notice Jesus didn't say, and isn't that unfair? They should have all had equal. No. Why? Because the man had, it was the man's money. He could distribute it uh, to whom he, he wanted to distribute it. One man had five, one man had two, and one person had one. Beloved, if you are sitting here and you think, that's me, I've only got one, you should praise God. He didn't have to give you anything. And if you've got two, praise God even more. And if you've got five, praise God. There should be no one here saying, how dare you, God, give him ten, and I've only got, well, half, or three quarters, or two. You shouldn't think like that. You should praise God for what you have got. These things are good looks, good physique, for example. Um, this popularity that I spoke about, ability in a practical way, um, a natural love of moving furniture, uh, money. Some people are able to sing brilliantly, you know, and others cannot. Now the question is, you've got these talents, so every one of us here is rich in some way. We then have to use these talents for the Lord. This is part of giving. And we, will always look, we must always look around to see how we can use it. By the way, we've got to use this for evangelism as well. Some people who are popular uh, must make sure their popularity is used to nab people for the gospel, you know, into the kingdom. That's what they've got to do. And they must say, great, now everyone's going to love me in this place. They always do. Fine. But they're going to end up loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must use what we have for the unbeliever to bring him to the Lord. For the body of Christ, we have to, to uh, bring these things forward for one another because of our love uh, for the, the saints of Jesus Christ and for uh, the, the reason that we recognize that all are members of the body of Jesus Christ. Now look what happens. He gave to every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Verse 16, Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and he made them five more talents. Now that's a 100% increase that man got. Next, likewise, he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now that's the different ways of doing it. And by the way, the unbelievers do what the, one with ma sorry, the man with one talent actually did. There are unbelievers around who are very beautiful, you know, uh, very charismatic, aren't they, you know, have wonderful personalities, but most of them squander it on themselves. It's equivalent to putting it into the ground, you know, wasting it down there. And the day comes then when the man comes back and he wants an account of stewardship. This day will happen to every person in this room. Verse 19, after a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. 
And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Now the five talent man has a percentage increase of 100. A hundred percent increase. And look what happens, verse 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, only a hundred years salary, just a little bit. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Verse 22. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides. The man with two talents gained two talents. He has a 100% increase. And this is the glorious thing for us. Do you know that the words of the master are exactly the same to him as they were to the man who, who had doubled his five talents? You just read what the man says. Verse 23. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And this has a marvellous significance for us. For it means this, that when you get to heaven, you may receive the same reward as those who have many more talents than you've got. It's a lovely thing. Let me give you an example. Say there's one man who has uh, 40,000 opportunities for Christ. All right? In his life, there are 40,000 things that, where the Lord has presented him in a situation and he has had the ability to meet that situation. And say he meets all 40,000. Well, that's 100%. He'll receive 100% reward. But say there's someone else, a little typist, you know, in London, living in a bedsit, doesn't know many people, a bit shy, and she's only got 40 opportunities to serve the Lord. Well, say she takes up all 40. Wonderful. That's 100%. She'll get the same reward as the man who had 40,000 opportunities. That's wonderful equality, isn't it? All right. Let's say the man who has 40,000 abilities actually only takes up 20,000 of them. Well, then his reward is 50%, and he'll receive a good reward for that. The little woman may have taken up 20 of hers. Good news. It's also 50%. She'll receive the same reward as the talented man. So, beloved, don't waste your time thinking, oh, if only I had that, or if only I had this, or if only I could do what he does and had the opportunities he's got. No, you've got your own opportunities. You will be called to account over the little that you have, how you have used it for the Lord. All right, with those, then verse 24, then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, this is the unbeliever actually, but I know Christians who are like this, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. Lord, I've never forgiven you that you didn't make me six foot six, good looking, Robert Redford style, you know. Lord, I knew you're a hard man. You, you did me in, Lord, didn't you really? You know, you had it in for, for me from the day I was born. You know, everyone else had everything and I had nothing. I knew you were a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, expecting me to do things that I couldn't do and gathering where thou hast not strawed, and I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. Here we are, my life given back to you. I hope you're satisfied. That's the type of attitude. His Lord answered and said to him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not. Huh? The her is mine, by the way. <laughs> and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers. In other words, invested it in a bank. Why didn't you just do that? At least that way I would have had just a little bit of interest. And then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore, and notice this, the talent from him and give it unto him which has ten talents. And I have found this to be the case, that those Christians who bemoan their lot and bemoan the little that they've got, 
They don't even get satisfaction from what they have got. Whereas those who may only have a little, but they rejoice in God what they have got. Why? They find it's added. They get more and more and more. It's really wonderful. Let's say one commodity, by the way. Do you know time is a commodity that God has given you? He owns all time. And there are some people in this fellowship who are very poor as far as time is concerned. There are others who are very rich. Very often those who've got time on their hands sit in their little rooms and they say, no one's been around to see me. Oh, I've got nothing to do. I'm all lonely. That's ridiculous. That's your talent. And you're wasting it, squandering it. You're expecting those who don't have any time to come round and spend the little bit of time they've got on you, who've got plenty. Oh, you will be called to an account. It's rather like a man with £10,000 in the bank waiting for those who've only got £1 to come round and give them 50p. You know? Well, this is a bit off. You know? No one's been round. No one's put an envelope through my door. You know? I hear Rogers have 50p. Or so-and-so's have 50p. No one's put 50p through my door. Where some of us are rich, and do you know most of us are rich in areas we've never actually realized? This shows we will give accountability. By the way, verse 29 is what happens to the unbeliever. Uh, sorry, verse 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every believer, however, ought to be, verse 29, for unto everyone that hath shall be given. Lord, thank you for what I've got. Hallelujah. I have, and I'm going to use it for you. The little it is, I'm going to use every bit. And he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall e even be taken away that which he hath. Now, can you see, what is the picture here? It is of personal responsibility. And every one of us has personal responsibility and are answerable as far as God is concerned. Okay, now how does this fit into a fellowship life? Our aim in this fellowship is that every man may use his or her, every man or woman may use his or her talents to the full. There are church situations where people can't move, you know, they can't use their talents. A fellowship is designed specifically for you to use your talents. Wherever you are rich, there are people in the midst who are poor. And I want to have a look at the poor today and next time and to see who the real poor are. And we've got to get out of our minds that poverty is only something to do with money. You see? Let's have a look at this word poor. Now, unfortunately, most of us have a totally unbiblical attitude as far as poverty is concerned. Today, if you don't have fitted carpets and the colour TV, you think you're poor. That's not what the Bible says about poverty. And I wonder whether we could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and have a look and see what the Lord says about poverty. I know many Christians whose main aim is to become rich, you know, for the Lord's prosperity, they say, i.e. I've got to live in absolute abundance. And they see certain Christians who do and they say that's the way it ought to be. Well, it's not the way it ought to be. God certainly wants you to have enough, but not to have more than enough. 1 Timothy 6, and verse 6, which tells us what great gain is. Do you see the last bit of this? says, is great gain. In other words, how can the Christian win the pools? Here's the answer. It's godliness with contentment that is the pools win for the Christian. Living a godly life, serving the Lord, loving him, praising him, and being content with what you have means you are a rich man. That means that a rich man, in terms of money, who is not content, he's a poor man under the biblical scheme. Verse 7, and this reminds you of it, for we brought nothing into this world, did we? Absolutely nothing. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. So why are you so bothered about all these things? Verse 8, having food and clothing, let us therewith be content. If you've got enough food and you've got sufficient clothes, and I would add something to this, you know, fortunately, Timothy doesn't say at the end, you know, any man who adds to this, these curses shall be upon him. I would add one thing here, a sufficient 
housing also. If you have a roof over your head, enough food in your stomach, and enough clothes, then please, will you be content with that? You're a rich man, if that is the case. But they that will be rich, and this is the poor he's talking about, by the way, those who don't have, who, who long to be rich, then it says, they fall into temptation, into snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And you know the poor very often love money more than the rich do, in the way that those who are ugly love beauty more than those who are beautiful. I've generally found that those people who are rich in a particular area, they don't think about it particularly, you know? It's always those who don't have that particular area who get a fixation about this thing. You know, people who aren't intelligent, they wish they were. Whereas a person who's intelligent never thinks about it particularly. Isn't it funny? And here, the lack of money is a great danger because you can actually be accused of the love of money. Be content with your own lot and don't compare yourselves with other people. That's Paul's message. Okay, who are the poor then? Well, the word poor actually um, is a Greek word. Obviously, there's an equivalent in Hebrew. But let's take the Greek word. It is the word... Tokos. Tokos. There it is. And the word tokos actually has a very definite meaning. It means this, to be dependent on others. To be dependent on others. It was used, for example, of a cripple who couldn't work. He did, it, not that he didn't want to work, he couldn't work. And the only thing he could do in the ancient world, was to sit and to beg. He was totally dependent upon other people. He was called poor. A man without money who could work was never called poor because he was never dependent upon other people. He could use his own effort to get his money. You see? And in the ancient world, we didn't have the marvellous benefits we have today. Social security had none of that. They had no unemployment benefit. They had no pensions at all. And so, in the ancient world, there were plenty of people who were tokos. Tokos, that is, they were dependent upon other people. You imagine a child who is born, he's illegitimate. He receives absolutely nothing. No one wanted an illegitimate child around. He was tokos because he was dependent on what others gave him. Many women found themselves in this position. You imagine a woman with five children... And her husband goes out and say he's waylaid by some marauders out in the hills and actually killed. She suddenly receives news that her husband's been murdered. And say she has no other family but these five children. That woman is left absolutely destitute. She couldn't go to the government and say, excuse me, but uh, could I have a pension, do you think? You know, or social security. The government wasn't interested. In the ancient world generally, um, the people like this, they were totally exploited. And the word potokos, by the way, also means exploited and in bondage. It means all of those things. She had nothing. The way she solved that problem was this. A, she would either beg on the streets. B, she would train her children to be thieves. Or C, she would go into prostitution. That was the way she earned her money. She had no alternative but to do that. And the people who ran the government in the ancient world, they weren't interested in these people. They were only interested in people who could benefit them. Well, these people couldn't. And generally speaking, in the ancient world, the poor, that is, those who were dependent upon others, were absolutely treated like scum. They had no justice. Anyone could exploit them. People just used to pick them up off the streets and take them into slavery. You know? Oh, it was the most appalling thing. Only one nation cared for the poor. A nation which was unique in history. You don't have to guess which nation it was. It was the nation which ran under God's law. That is the nation of Israel. And in Israel, they did a wonderful thing. The poor were recognized to be in the image of God like the rich were. And being in the image of God, they had to be provided for, and they had to have equal justice with the king. Oh, it was wonderful. 
And do you know, as a result, all the poor from all the other nations used to head in towards Israel. And they were absolutely full of these people. Let's see what the Old Testament says about the poor. It actually lists four categories of poor people. So turn to Deuteronomy and chapter 26, and let's see the poor of the Old Testament. And this list will surprise you. All right, Deuteronomy 26, beginning verse 13. It's talking about a man who's given, by the way, to the poor. But look at the four categories of poor that are listed here. Deuteronomy 26, verse 13. Then thou shalt say before the Lord thy God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and also have given them unto... And here's the list of the poor. First one, the Levite. Here was an Israeli belonging to the tribe of Levi, who, because of his ministry, could not earn his own keep. He was poor. Why? He was dependent upon other people. That may surprise you, that one, by the way. The Levite was considered among the poor. And unto the second category, which is the stranger. I'll tell you about these in just a moment. Unto the stranger. And the next one, the fatherless. And the next one, the widow. So we get the fatherless orphans and illegitimate children, and the last one, the widows. And these were considered the poor. The strangers, by the way, were uh, these people from other nations, from Moab, Ammon, and all the other nations around, uh, who actually came into Israel to live. Now, you'll notice one thing about these. Exclude the Levite for the moment. Do you notice that no Israeli man is listed among the poor? No Israeli man was ever considered among the poor. Why? Well, the answer to that gives you the reason why we have this list. You see, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, every man received a plot of land, which was his forever. And on that plot of land, he could put up a tent, so he was all right. He had rights on that plot of land. And on that plot of land, in the climate that was in Israel in those days, he could actually grow enough food for his family. So no Israeli man was ever considered poor. And by the way, if an Israeli man did find himself, for some reason, in uh, bad straits, then he, was, he could sell himself as a slave for six years. Couldn't sell himself as a slave permanently, but he could actually say to a chap, are you looking for a slave? Well, I'll be your slave for six years. How much will you give me? You know, and the man used to pay him a certain sum of money, and he became the slave for those six years. So no Israeli man was ever considered among the poor. The stranger was, why? Because under God's law, no foreigner was allowed to own land in Israel. Right? They could come and receive benefits. They weren't allowed to own land. God owned the land and he'd given it to the Jews and no one else was going to touch it. They could live there, but they couldn't own any land. Next, the fatherless couldn't own any land. Why? Well, he had no father. And it was the men, the heads of the families, who were actually given the right to ownership. So the fatherless, the orphans, they had no land at all. So they couldn't earn their own living. And last, the widows... These are widows indeed, as Timothy calls them, that is, without their families looking after them. And these widows had no husband, and so they had no land, you see? Now, these were the people who were totally dependent upon other people. And God arranged in his law that they should be looked after. Oh, he had a wonderful system of doing this. And um, the forgotten sheaf was theirs. Do you know what the forgotten sheaf is? It's lovely. When a man owned a... a, a plot of land and he used to harvest it, he wasn't allowed to go over the field twice. He could only do it once. If he harvested from his vineyard, he could only do it once. He wasn't allowed to go over it again. And everything that he left, and there were always bits left in the corner and so on, every bit he left was the, the, uh, it was the right of the poor to go in and to take it as their own. You remember the book of Ruth? 
deals with this a great deal, doesn't it? That was lovely. The other glorious thing was uh, on the Sabbath year, the poor were allowed to take what they wanted from the fields. And the marvelous thing about trees is they knew nothing about the Sabbath. You see, so a man had a vineyard, and on the seventh year, he wasn't allowed to collect grapes from that vineyard. But the tree didn't know that and carried, out, carried on putting forth grapes. The poor used to go and help themselves, and they were allowed to. And every field used to bring forth something because there were always some ears of corn that fell into the ground. And they could go into the field and they could take what they wanted from that particular field. That was God's grace. It was lovely. They all looked forward to the seventh year. And also to provide for them, he had a rule that every third year, a tenth of every man's income should be given to them. And this included the stranger as well as the Israeli. They were all looked after. And every man had a right to justice, even though he was poor. Now that was the way God provided. And there's something else I want to say. If ever the nation of Israel did not care for the poor in their midst, God was down upon them like a ton of bricks. You just read how many times it says in the prophets, you have oppressed the poor and the needy. You have not looked after the widows. God accuses them all the time, right? There are, there are lovely passages that are found in Scripture concerning this, right? You read Amos chapter 8 for yourself. He says, you've sold the needy into slavery. You have oppressed them on every hand, and I will cause this land to shake because of your evilness. Keep in the book of Deuteronomy. Go to chapter 15. In Deuteronomy 15, God makes an amazing statement. A statement which the Lord himself would repeat some years later. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. In other words, no matter how long you're on the face of this earth, Israel, you will always have those who will be dependent upon you. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. These were the real poor. Let me tell you, God's system was so wonderful, it was better than our system. The skivers were never provided for. The extravagant were never provided for. Those who wanted to be poor so that everyone could look after them were never provided for. These are the genuine poor. And God tested the true spirituality of the Israelis by their attitude to those in need. I'll show you that. Go to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, 17 to 22. And here God reminds them of an important principle. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. Thou, sh thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger. Just because he's poor, don't give him bad judgment. You know, give him equal judgment. Nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. Don't remove the garment that keeps her warm as a sort of pledge on any debt that she owes you. Verse 18, why? But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman, which is a slave, in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. He says, look, you rich Israelis, if it hadn't been for me, you'd be poor today. If it hadn't been for my grace, you would be in bondage and mistreated back in Egypt. But I, by my grace and my love, I set you free. And Israel, he says, in remembrance of that, so you must do to the poor also. And then he repeats it. Verse nine, 19. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field and hast, hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the works of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, you beat them to harvest them. You know that, don't you? And the olives fall off. Yes, I was woken up at five o'clock in Italy one day with that going on. 
Thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not clean it afterwards. It shall be for the, father, for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. The poor in Israel showed the spiritual state of the Jews. And do you know that the poor in our midst show exactly the same thing? Yes. This is why Jesus said, the poor ye shall always have among you. This doesn't say that uh, when poor people come into the fellowship, they're always going to remain poor. No, we're going to help them out, obviously, and look after them. But what it means is, in, in any fellowship which is doing its job, you'll always find people in need. Not just financial need, people who need a hand in decorating, people who need a hand in this, people who need a hand in that. Next time, I'm going right through all the areas where we are rich and where others are poor and how we can help people. You'll be surprised at those who are poor in the midst. You'll also be surprised at those who are rich in the midst. And we will, of course, be dealing with financial things as well. But do you know, when God looks at us as a fellowship and looks at any group of Christians, he is looking to see how are we looking, how, how are we looking after those who are in this oppressed condition. That's the test. Who are in our midst. You see? How are we caring for them? I go to many, many fellowships. And many of them speak many wonderful words, but do you know, I look in their faces sometimes, and they're raw. It's the only way I can explain it. There's a raw, uncared-for look in their face. Oh, they've got prayer, and all the rest. They haven't got any practical assistance. No one looks after them, or shepherds them, or cares for them in the slightest way, you know? Um, as one woman in one quite large fellowship said to me, she said, compassion? because I was talking about the compassion that Christians have for one another. She said, compassion? She said, compassion's only found in the dictionary in our fellowship. You know? And it really hurt me when I realized that that was true. Beloved, it's the acid test of our spirituality. And that's why I rejoice that the book of James is in the Bible. As I said, I think a few evenings ago, it cuts through all the hogwash and gets down to the nitty-gritty of what fellowship life is about, you see? Let me show you how the New Testament tells us what God told the Old uh, Testament people. Turn to Revelation, chapter 3. <coughs> Turn to Revelation, chapter 3. And verse 14, you remember here he's writing to churches, and he's actually giving an appraisal of how they've done. I've sometimes asked the Lord, how would we in this fellowship do if the Lord ever wrote to us like this? And he may do one day. Verse 14, look what it says. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Works, yes. In other words, how you're using your talents. I've looked down, he says, and I've seen the way you help one another. You're not hot, zealous to help one another, and you're not cold, you know. No one of you is actually sort of saying, oh, well, I'm not going to do anything. No, don't ask me, I'm not interested. None of you will do that. But on the other hand, none of you are really prepared to lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're sort of lukewarm. And he says, and do you know, you make me sick. That's what this means. I will spew you out of my mouth. That's what it means. In fact, it's ruder than our phrase, you make me sick. You see? He says, that's not it. And they'd forgotten something that was key. And this was the cause of their error, as it is the cause of many errors in the body of Christ today. I know thy works, thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot or cold. You know, at least you'd be showing your true colours instead of trying to put up a nice little front, but really I know what's on your heart. 
So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And in verse 17 is his analysis why they're not hot. Here's his analysis. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Oh, I've, my house is well sorted out now. I have a nice little family, you know, a nice little Toyota or whatever you've got. And uh, I, things are going fairly well, you know. I come along, I have fellowship, we have the Bible studies, I have my tape recorder. Why, things have never been better. Isn't that wonderful? Oh God, you've blessed me so abundantly. Hallelujah. And then God says this, And thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. What had they forgotten? They'd forgotten this fact that they in themselves are most needy, that all of us are wretched and poor and blind, naked. But through his grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've received these things in abundance. They'd forgotten. They thought that they really deserved this little plot of land and their happiness. And because they'd forgotten that, their hearts had shut down to others in need. Beloved, may we be warned. You may be rich, you may be well off, you may have a very comfortable life. You've got it by the grace of God. And you will give account. When you see those in need, therefore, and close your heart, you've forgotten the root out of which you have come. You close your heart, and you've forgotten all blessing that you've received has come from the Lord. That's also why Paul mentions this. Do you know, Paul speaks in a similar way, and do you know where he does it? He does it in the two chapters where he speaks about giving. And by the way, in those two chapters, he doesn't mention tithing once. We'll be dealing with giving in a few weeks' time, and we'll see that. He, but he devotes two whole chapters to giving. And right in the middle of one of the chapters, he puts a very interesting little phrase in. Let's just see it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Now, in 2 Corinthians 8 and chapter 9, we have him talking about giving. But here in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, look at the point that he makes right in the middle of this chapter on giving. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And that is the thing we've got to remember constantly in the areas where we are rich. There are not many in our midst who are rich financially, but there are many who are rich in many other ways. Remember, please, that the Lord Jesus Christ owned everything in the whole universe, yet he gave it all up for your sake. Do you know when he came down here on this earth, he even gave up his own power, and he moved and lived entirely under the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how poor he became. Why? Because he loved you, who were helpless, who were naked, who were without any hope, so much that he thought that he had to come and save you. And he gave all for the poor. And he says, remember that, please. And whenever you do anything for one another, do it for this reason, that Christ has done the same for you. All right? That's the attitude that we've got to have. And I would ask us all to search our hearts with all diligence and ask God to search our hearts. Lord, do we stand in humility before you? Are we walking humbly? If we are walking humbly, it will show in our relationships with one another. But if ever we forget the mould from which we have come, it will be demonstrated in the hardness of heart to one another. All right. Next time I'll be dealing with who the poor really are. Could I just make one point before I end? And it's this. There are some people who are poor because of mismanagement, because of extravagance and many other things. There are also people who come into the fellowship who are poor, I'm talking financial terms now, and they think that the fellowship is simply an extension of the social services. 
Now, actually, those people who come in who may have got themselves into terrible trouble because of mismanagement, they are poor in more areas than just financial areas. And we as a fellowship must make sure that these people not only receive what they need, they've also got to receive training in their areas of extravagance. Do you remember the prodigal son? Yes? He got everything and he went and squandered it. Do you know the word prodigal means extravagant? I wish it was translated like that in our Bibles. The extravagant son. He went, he took what he had, and he went and he squandered it on himself. The only way that type of thing leads is to the pig trough. Nowhere else. And no checks from daddy when you're there. Many Christians think there are. There are not. That's why in the New Testament, these, the people who were extravagant or who couldn't run their money affairs, they received not a penny from the Lord. Absolutely not a bit. And with the prodigal son, he had to come into his right mind first. When he came into his right mind, then he found father running to meet him and the fatted calf back at home. He did not find it where he was by the picture. I want to say that because, do you know, I have been appalled by some of the things that I've seen in my short ministry. Oh, I can't believe some of the things that have gone on. Right? Not just in our fellowship. I'm talking many fellowships. People who have absolutely squandered what they've got on extravagance and expected the body of Christ to come and pay for it at the end. People who can't afford luxuries, but as soon as they get a little bit of help, they say, well, we don't have many things, but we'll just have this one luxury. And out they go, and they spend money on this little luxury. Then they're in worse financial trouble than ever. Back to the fellowship, you know. I could tell you some stories that would make your hair curl, right? <laughs> It explains quite a lot. <laughs> One of the things we have to do is this, as good stewards, we have to make sure that the Lord's money is not squandered. Unless that is corrected, then it's like putting the Lord's money into a drain which will suck more and more. And I've always found, and let me tell you this, that people have received and received and received, when then the supply dries up, they're bitter. They're twisted towards the Christians very strange it is. Beloved, we have got to make sure that people in need in our fellowship come to the position where they can, if possible, supply for themselves. It is personal responsibility, you know? And in the days in which we live, this personal responsibility is not taught, really. People are, have the mentality that everyone owes them a living. In the body of Jesus Christ, that has got to change. Next time I'll be talking about the poor, and listen to this. I'll be laying it on the line as to what the Bible says about certain issues, including HP, loans, and all the rest. I doubt if there are many people who are going to be comfortable next time. But we're going to see what the Bible says, because God wants wholeness in his body. And though we may not be in wholeness at the moment, we are coming through to wholeness in the financial sphere as well as wholeness in every other sphere. Jesus said, the poor ye shall always have among you. And they are there to demonstrate our heart's attitude as far as the Lord is concerned. Let us seek the Lord and ask him to show whether there be any evil way in any of us. God bless you all. Next time, the real poor. Amen.